for this project, I really, really, truly did not know if it was possible or not um, when we set off this May. There's just so many places things could go wrong. There were so many places things did go wrong. And a lot of, you know, high altitude logistics and cold chain logistics and and the human factor. It just seemed like it was close to impossible. <laughs> this is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. When Alison Crisotello says she loves the cold, she means it. Frozen landscapes are her favorite places to work and play. In 2016, Allison got her PhD in glaciology from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. For work, she's an ice core scientist and director of Canada's ice core lab in Edmonton. For play, Allison climbs mountains. As a high-altitude mountaineer and guide, she has summited major peaks in the Andes, Alaska, and Himalayas, to name a few. Sometimes, Allison's work and mountaineering passion come together in perfect harmony. She's a National Geographic explorer, and today I'm talking to her about an expedition five years in the making. Actually, two expeditions. Allison recently led two trips to Mount Logan, Canada's highest peak in the name of climate research. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. As someone who loves the cold and mountains, it seems like being an ice core scientist kind of combines uh, many passions for you. Yeah, it sure does. So what exactly is an ice core scientist? Tell me sort of what's a typical day in the lab for you? Um, well, what is an ice core scientist, first of all? Uh, yeah, I guess we're people who drill ice cores all over the world, not just in the polar regions, um, in order to learn new things about our past climate. And um, a typical day in the lab, that's actually a really hard one to answer because a lot of days look very different. Sometimes I'm processing cores. So, you know, standing around with bandsaws and freezers, cutting ice. Other days in a room temperature lab, analyzing ice. Uh, other days, analyzing data and writing papers. So it's kind of a cyclical job. And of course, I'm in the field a lot too. So it depends on the day. So you're the director of the Canadian Ice Core Lab at the University of Alberta. So I picture that as you know, there's a bunch of freezers and a bunch of ice. I know you've got some ice from like various polar regions. That's right. Uh, so the lab itself, there is a big analytical room with uh, a bunch of analytical instruments that are dedicated to running chemistry on snow and ice. And then, yeah, the other half of the lab is quite cold. <laughs> there's a room that's at about minus 40, which is our ice library or the archive room. And yeah, that room is around minus 40, which is the temperature at which we like to store ice for longer term because um, you don't get any migration of gases or chemical species or anything like that. And so you, don't, you can you know, store these climate records for longer periods of time at the, kind of those deep cold temperatures. And yes, that is the room that has right now about a kilometer and a half of ice almost entirely from the Canadian high Arctic, but there's ice in there from, from other places around the world. Uh, and then, yeah, and then there's a working freezer as well, um, which is a comfortable 
minus 26 degrees C and, and the room where we do all the cutting and imaging. So you've got ice from Arctic regions in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, why, why did you want to get ice from Mount Logan specifically? Well, yeah, so ice cores can do contain global climate information, but they also contain um, really important information that's sort of more local or regional. And so if we think about the places where we have long-term climate records, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years worth of climate data, you know, we're, we're talking basically about the polar regions. Um, and so there are not that many places outside of the poles that have just the right conditions to offer us this different geographic perspective, this long-term climate perspective uh, from, from other places on the planet. And, and Mount Logan is really unique in a number of ways. It's, it's one of these few places. There are, there are other high cold places um, like it's sort of sister peak over the Alaska border, Denali, for example. So there, there are a couple other places um, that have this potential too, but Logan, even among those, stands out because of how enormous the mountain is. And not just that, but kind of uh, how much of this enormous mountain sits up very high, sitting in the free, free troposphere, raking snow out of the North Pacific. And um, so it has it's kind of always held this magical wonder, I think, for some of us who, who have been looking for longer term, tens of thousands of years, climate records outside of the polar regions. Um, we know that there's very old ice sitting up there, and that's unique for a nonpolar location. Okay, so you have, I think I read 2,000 pounds of Mount Logan ice <laughs> in your lab. Let's talk about how, how you got that. So uh, first of all, let's just set the scene a little bit and tell people a little bit about Mount Logan for, for those who, who aren't aware of it. Can you just tell us a bit about where it is and what it's like? Yeah, definitely. Um, Mount Logan is the highest peak in Canada and the second highest in North America. And um, it's in the ice field ranges in Kluwani National Park in the Yukon, which is the largest nonpolar ice field in the world. Um, and Logan yeah, like I just alluded to, is sort of uh, unique in in the mountain complex itself. It's by base circumference and just mass, it is the largest non-volcanic mountain on earth. <laughs> it's just enormous. And the summit plateau, which is all kind of above 17,000 feet, is 20 kilometers long. So this is also the unique special you know, ice core friendly feature of it, that it's got this enormous bowl, basically, of ice that's been accumulating over long periods of time. That's, it's not stagnant, but it, it doesn't have a lot of flow to it. And it's accumulated over long periods of time. So yeah, that's, that's where Mount Logan sits. And you, uh, you said sev above 17,000 feet, uh, that's uh, in metric above 5,000 meters, right? The plateau itself. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. So that, yeah, the the main summit itself is five nine five nine meters, and then um, yeah, I can't remember the exact location of the coring site, but something around well, it's about five thousand meters. Yes, <laughs> high, <laughs> higher than most of us high. have been. Uh, okay, so you had to go for for this specific expedition or or project rather, you had to go to Mount Logan and uh, twice. Uh, can you just tell us sort of briefly about why you had to go each of the times, and then we'll kind of dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, the first year, the main focus was 
climbing Logan and, you know, to work safely up on the summit plateau and doing a, a radar survey. Um, so this was basically to look at the internal layering or stratigraphy of the ice um, from the surface all the way down to the bedrock below to let us pick the ideal ice coring location. And that can't really be done in the same season as the drilling. Um, you're constrained by the climbing season and it takes a bit of time to do the radar survey. Um, but probably more importantly than that, you have to you know, fully analyze the radar data and you just can't do all of that on the fly in the field. So, so doing the site selection required its own entire season, um, which we completed last year, May, 2021. And then, yeah, of course, after, you know, narrowing down on the actual drilling location, then this past May, 2022, um, we went back, climbed Logan again and did the drilling. Okay. We'll dig into that in a second. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> So you, you, in the last two years, climbed Logan twice, but you'd also climbed that once previously, like in quotes, for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the quotes are correct placement. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd be back to uh, back at Mount Logan? Um, no, I said, I said I would never climb it again. Um, not because I didn't love it. I mean, uh, yeah, um, it just is really, it's just beastly. It really takes it took a lot out of me and um even comparing it to to peaks much higher that I've climbed I found it um you know it's particularly cold and in, inhospitable up on the summit plateau it's very committing because of this this feature of having to go up to get down which um yeah is kind of unique and and I I felt very deeply on that first climb and so no I didn't think I I didn't think I would climb it again for any reason. When you say to go up to, to go down, do you get, get to like a, a ridge or sub plateau and then you go down to the summit plateau and then up again to the peak? Yeah, that's right. On the, on the standard route, which I've taken all three times, you go up and over prospector's call. So it's, it's a high call and it's where I've put a weather station. Sorry, I don't know in meters, but it's at 18 and a half thousand feet. So you go up and over that and then on your way to your summit, you drop back down quite a ways before you go up again. So, so yeah, you know, if you have altitude issues or anything on the summit plateau, yeah, it's, it's just very committing to have to ascend to descend. I spoke to Parks Canada. They said uh, sort of on average, they see about 34 climbers a year uh, who attempt Mount Logan and only 50% of them are successful roughly. And you've climbed Mount Logan three times successfully. So you've got a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, record going there, but let's get into a little bit. Uh, you said, yeah, it, it's, it's a hard mountain. It's cold. Uh, it's windy. Um, so what is that like? Like how long does it take to, to climb on a, on a typical expedition, let alone a scientific one? Yeah, I think, yeah, each time it took either nine or 10 days. Um, I'm not sure if that's probably about average, maybe a little on the faster side, but um, especially with a team, uh, you know, that I'm preparing to stay up high um, during the drilling season for weeks, we really wanted to double carry. So, you know, climb every section twice, take our time. Um, you know, if it was really, really horrendous winds and weather, we would we stayed where we were and didn't move in it and that kind of thing. So yeah, nine or 10, 10 days to ascend. Yeah. The only, I mean, thing of note that I've found interesting having seen 
the standard route over a bunch of years now is that the sort of critical cruxy section, the King Call Ice Fall, is definitely changing um, as as the ice fall is uh, is speeding up, basically, and some of the ice is pulling away from the bedrock below. So the first time I ascended it on skis, no problem. I think my skis were on the whole time and it didn't take too much navigation to get through it. And then last year and this year were noticeably different. Um, like it was quite a maze. There was basically one line through it and, you know, like definitely cramponing a bunch and hopping over some big holes and and descending a very different route than we ascended. Like it's pretty um, mobile at this point. So I I suspect that ice fall will render the standard route not standard within the next five to 10 years. Wow. You've encountered some pretty fierce winds up there as well and temperatures, I imagine. Yeah, especially on the summit plateau. There's really no hiding from the winds. I think on the ascent this year, um, the one day that we decided not to move, there were yeah about 100 kilometer an hour winds, which I can't stand in. Um, so we didn't move. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow you held down all your gear and tents and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just dig yourself a hole. <laughs> dig into the snow. Okay, so let's talk about the drilling. So you've double carried each section. So you've done each section of the mountain twice. You're at the summit plateau above 5,000 meters. So tell me about your, your rig setup and, and what you're actually doing up there to get the cores. Yeah. Um, so we we climbed it just with what we needed to climb, of course, and food and fuel for that and and extra for safety. But the drill and the generator for the drill and the fuel for the drill um, is, of course, way too heavy to carry up there. So once we got up there, uh, in fact, when we were on that call, I was talking about on Prospector's call, I, I uh, gave us that phone call to the helicopter company to you know, to ask them to start heli slinging stuff in. And so um, we got lucky with the weather with no delay on that. We basically arrived to the drill site and started receiving the drill equipment. So the drill is about 900 pounds all in all itself, which is three sling loads at that altitude. Um, Helicopter could take 300 pound loads. So it slung the drill up. We had broken it down into three, three parts and and then put it back together up on the plateau, um, slung fuel up, uh, this generator um, that works really nicely at altitude with the drill. And um, I also used a dome tent just to allow us to to actually cover the drill with a, a floorless tent and allow us to work in really bad weather, which worked quite well. So that and just some other kind of camp gear was kind of another load. So it was some, yeah, incredible high altitude flying with low payload. Um, for I was going to say, that's like pretty uncommon to fly a helicopter at that elevation, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually it's just sort of for for rescue and necessity, but it was planned this time. Yeah. And we, we set it all up in, in a day. Um, and the drill itself was actually built in Whitehorse. It's a, an eclipse drill. Um, it's a tipping tower style drill. So the whole drill kind of swings on an arm into this vertical position where you drill, you drill a meter at a time, and then it swings into a horizontal position where you pull the ice out. Um, so yeah, over and over drilling a meter at a time. And, and that's what we did for almost two weeks. Right. So yeah, it takes a long time to drill. It was over 300 meters of ice you drilled, hey? And so it's, it's not a yeah. fast process. 
It's not. I mean, it's faster at the surface when you're there's shorter drill travel time. You can kind of, you know, I think day one you can get you got 30 or 40 meters even. Um, but it really slows down as you're getting farther and farther down into the borehole. And you have to have someone on the drill the whole time as well to remove the samples and put them in the storage container. Yeah, it takes um, a, a minimum of three people to operate it at all times. Yeah. yeah you said you were working something like 14 hours a day with the drill. Yeah, I <laughs> I wasn't exactly sure the best tactic Um but I think the altitude ended up dictating what we decided to do, which was keep the drill running as many hours a day as possible to get people off and down as fast as possible. But that really meant it's just, you're just like sort of slowly deteriorating um, at that altitude and, and no one's kind of recovering or sleeping or eating very much. So, so we drilled in shifts, keeping the drill running 14 hours a day, um, which really is quite long. The start and end of the day is very cold, but it was sort of that or stay up there longer. And and that didn't seem like the better option to me. So yeah, you said, so there was a team, uh, there's a few of you up there, but I mean, humans aren't meant to be up at that level, I guess, for for that long. So yeah, you're, you're getting tired and kind of just, yeah, you're <laughs> losing energy, I guess, over the time. Yeah, I can't think of a better word. I just feel like we were all deteriorating. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Sign me up. (laughs) I've seen you uh, uh, quoted as saying that this was perhaps the most high risk or high stakes, high reward project you've ever been a part of. Can you uh, explain that to me a bit? (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think that's the best summary really. You know, I think that kind of attitude, I feel like I have that for, you know, alpine climbing and and just adventure, right? But but when it comes to doing science, I think um, I don't usually have this much risk from the start. Um, but I truly, I mean, much like a just a climb alone, somewhere you know, new and unknown for this project, I really, really, truly did not know if it was possible or not um, when we set off this May. There's just so many. <laughs> places things could go wrong. There were so many places things did go wrong. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, high altitude logistics and cold chain logistics and, and the human factor, it just seemed like it was close to impossible. (laughs) So I'm, yeah, very, very high risk. Um, but as you say, I think, I mean, we'll see, we don't have the data in hand yet, but hopefully, um, high reward. So when you say, when you refer to risks, what are, what are you referring to? Yeah, I guess I mean the risk of actually, you know, physically pulling this off or not and logistically, but um, just being able to do it or not. Um, altitude being, of course, the main factor co- to contend with. And the the main way, I guess, that I planned to mitigate what I saw as the biggest risk was to start with a team bigger than I usually would use. I, I really like doing things more kind of fast and light with one other person, um, like the radar season. Um, and I, so I started the drilling season. We left from base camp as seven, a team of seven, including myself. So I had six people with me, which is a lot, you know, but four of us made it to the top. Y- yeah. To the end. So yeah, the risks were real. 
all, all three that didn't make it to the end were all altitude related. So they had to turn back, right? Well, yeah. They, like yeah. they were, had to descend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the kind of risk I mean. Um, mm-hmm. But again, of course, it, you know, I, I tried to, to plan for it, but it's still really hard when it happens. And, you know, as people basically get picked off by altitude and different things happen and, and, you know, your critical drill engineer gets sick and, you know, every time something happens, you're like, oh my God, is, is this the thing that's going to shut it down? Yeah. That's what I mean by risk. <laughs> time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt, a toque, mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. So you drilled for, sorry, you said 12 days or 14 days? Uh, I think it was 12 days of drilling. Okay. And then, so uh, you were helicoptering the cores off the summit plateau as you went along. So then you got your full depth of the core, you fly it off. Um, so what, what happens to the ice once it's flown off? Well, um, I staged uh, this freezer unit um, at the, the small landing strip in Kalani National Park, Silver City. Um, so there was just this random freezer sitting on the gravel runway and the helicopter was taking these sling loads of ice um, and kind of repackaging them about halfway in the ice field ranges and then doubling up loads out to the freezer. Um, So yes, once that last load of ice made its way to that freezer sitting there, which was being sort of babysat by a technician and a backup freezer and, you know, thought all these things through, um, (laughs) then that freezer unit got trucked across the country from where it was sitting there in Kulani National Park, um, here where I'm sitting now, uh, to the Ice Core Lab in Edmonton. That's a lot of moving parts. So you had, a, yeah, you were in charge of a lot of people, a lot of logistics for this mission. Yeah. How, how many years of I planning mean, went into it? <laughs> like five, wow. five years. Amazing. Okay. So, and, you, it's, and not just, I mean, this is not just me, <laughs> right, your a team, lot. a bunch of folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you successfully got the ice back to the ice core lab in, in Edmonton, a huge, a huge feat. Um, uh, that would have been, I guess in, in May or June, you got it back there. So uh, what are you, what are you doing with it now? <laughs> yeah. It almost beat me back here. It was back here by the, the second week of June and um, last month, we finished the imaging and processing, um, which we did all here in my lab. Um, so basically, we got the core ready for the analyses that we have planned for it. Um, and that's what's coming up uh, next month. <laughs> so yeah, the cutting itself, um, we we basically cut each meter in half and right away archive half. So half of the entire Logan core is sitting in the archive for other scientists to use, for future scientists to use, um, anyone who applies to use it. Um, And then the other half, we've cut up um, the way that we need for our top analysis priorities um, coming up. And and that's really sort of the the trace element, stable isotope, major ion, um, 
in some ways the like the most common things that we generally look at first, um, especially in these longer climate records. You're saying the ice from Mount Logan might be, was it over 10,000 years old? Well, oh God, I hate this question because I don't know. <laughs> I don't, everyone wants to know how old it is. Okay. I don't know. But it's okay, old. Theori- theoretically, like, yes, it could be. It has been hypothesized that 30,000 year old ice, so pre Holocene, Pleistocene ice is sitting up on the summit plateau. Um, yeah. So Pleistocene, that's when there was like giant beavers and, and like <laughs> camels roaming the Yukon, basically. I mean, we didn't see any in the core. But <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so this, the oldest ice, does it, does it just look like regular ice? Or is there anything like to just like the regular eye that you would notice about it? Well, I hope I'm not wrong, but to me, it looks, it does look very different. Um, and we saw it in the field kind of a change in the ice quality. And then again, last month when we were processing it and a bunch of people, uh, you know, a whole team was helping process it that hadn't of course seen it in the field and everyone noticed, oh my gosh, like the, it's, it almost gets more, um, it gets less brittle near the bottom and more kind of glowy, bright blue and pliable, which is a bit strange for ice. Um, and this is purely anecdotal, but people who have handled Pleistocene ice before have said that, that it, you know, becomes more pliable and it's beautiful. <laughs> what did it feel like to hold that after all you've put into this mission? It's a little scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, felt proud holding it. Was it emotional? In the field or in the lab here? Either, yeah. Either? Well, it's funny. I, it definitely was in the field. Um, we were just processing it last month in the lab. Um, other people were getting emotional. And they're like, Ellie, why, like, why aren't you emotional about this? I don't know if it's just that I had already gone through it, but it was really cool to see other people for the first time watching the ice change, getting deep, getting below 300 meters and, and having an emotional response to it. Um, yeah, it was cool. So now you're going to be starting the actual analysis of, of the ice. So what are you, what are you hoping to learn from it or, or what could it tell us? I guess I don't know. There is. So if, yeah, we'll say that the ice is, you know, 10 to 30,000 years old, which covers a lot of very interesting and important climate transitions and some, which we really don't know much about in terms of climate variability in the North Pacific, like where this record is from. Um, We have long-term records like this, like I was saying from the polar regions, right. But not from the North Pacific. So I hope and imagine we will learn something new about, you know, how climate has shifted and changed it changed, especially over some of these periods where um, there's a lot of unknowns in the North Pacific that we just can't guess right now. And yeah, the list of even just kind of the data that we'll be gathering next month is feels almost endless, but, but yet to, I guess, as briefly as I can summarize, like we will, we'll use stable isotopes of oxygen isotopes to reconstruct temperature over this whole time period. So we'll have a, you know, a temperature reconstruction. We'll look at major ions. So um, any signal you can imagine that comes from the ocean and gets lifted up onto the ice, um, which can tell us a lot about, you know, say um, changes in the Gulf of Alaska and um, sea ice cover 
in that region over long periods of time. And yes, all sorts of information about sea surface conditions. And then a whole suite of trace elements, you know, name an element, and we're probably measuring it. And each one has, you know, kind of its own story about um, both in the longer term climate perspective, but also, you know, in more in some ways, more interesting to a lot of people, um, you know, over over human impacted time periods, um, look at dust and lead and things like that. One other thing I'm particularly excited about that a colleague is taking on is, um, is reconstructing wildfires from this record, um, something a lot of people are also interested in and um, looking not just at, you know, change in wildfire frequency over time as temperatures are warming and things like this, but also changes in, in vegetation. We can look now at exactly what was burning um, with some new analyses we're able to do and, um, and how the, the vegetation that's burning has changed over time as well. So those are some of the top analysis priorities coming up. Maybe this is a really big question, but will this allow scientists to kind of maybe have formed some hypotheses about like our changing climate now and what we could expect compared to like what's already happened? Well, hopefully, I mean, some of, so yeah, some of these uh, interesting climate transitions in the past are interesting to us because they, uh, they look like now, right? So understanding, yeah, the general theory of understanding the past to better predict the future certainly, certainly holds here. And, you know, places like Logan that are high, they seem like they're, you know, in some ways more protected by things like regional surface warming, but in fact, it's the opposite, that some of these high places um, experience, you know, greater surface warming than lower elevations, and and they're not actually immune to change. So we'll see. How long do you expect uh, your analysis to take? Um, <clears throat> all the analyses that I just mentioned, we actually will have finished by the end of November, which is fast, but this whole project was pushed back a year by COVID, and you know, there are students waiting for this data. And so we've really kind of fast-tracked the core. So, so um, yeah, I mean, by the end of this year, we'll be working with the bulk of that data. But like I said, you know, there's half the core left and um, there's enough material that gases could be measured in the future. Um, other people have already, have already piped in asking about um, you know, DNA. And I think there's a lot of ideas and we'll probably see applications quickly for use of the archive material. So there'll be a lot more to come that, that uh, we don't yet know. What's next for you then in terms of uh, expeditions or ice gathering or research? <laughs> ice gathering. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel very focused on this right now, but, um, but I do have a bunch of other projects. And I guess the next big drilling one which is with a lot of other colleagues is um, that's planned for next spring, not spring 2023, but the following um, is on Axel Heiberg, which is uh, an island in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. And it's kind of, kind of on the Western side of the archipelago. I've done a lot of ice core drilling on the Eastern side. Um, it's sort of logistically easier to get to the Eastern part of um, the islands, but um, this will be a really, really cool and interesting uh, core to drill. And I think that's, yeah, and about twice as deep as the Logan core. <laughs> oh. um, so that's the next, that's the next big drilling project that's coming up. 
you've obviously got a lot of passion for what you do. Uh, what do you get out of it? <laughs> um, well, I just love it. <laughs> I feel like it's what I was born to do, especially projects like the Logan one, which um, was truly the first time where my, my love of high altitude mountaineering and, and this kind of science came together. Like I've never had that before. And even though it was very risky, it felt like I was able to use this, you know, niche dual skill set that I've <laughs> kind of, I guess, honed over my life, but also ping-ponged between. Like it all came together really nicely. And it's just an incredible feeling to feel like you're doing, you know, what you were born to do. <laughs> The projects like the Axel One or Polar projects are a little less like that, I guess. You know, um, they lack the climbing um, kind of adventure component, um, but they're still in the places that I love to be and I'm totally enamored with. So, yeah, I I just love it. It's great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. And for a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street, across from City Hall. There's a great selection of clothing, hats, stickers, glassware, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. Editor at northofordinary.com is my email. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out soon. I hope you listen in.